Hi, I'm Paul Schlegel, and I'm going to tell you my story. Um, just got back from a recent trip to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Um, for those who don't know, that's a million-acre wilderness area in northern Minnesota. That's a popular area for canoe camping, tripping, and fishing, hunting. And uh, was up there in June, early June. I've been up there so many times, it seems so ordinary and uh this is a story about what happens when the the unordinary happens um i was with my my son uh who started out the trip as a seven-year-old and and uh and a buddy of mine from college and we got a late start didn't get as far in as we as we expected in the in the first couple days which kind of turned out to be a little turned out to be a good thing Early, early one morning, my son was still sleeping. We were camped. Uh, there was a spur trail um, just off of a long portage. And again, for those unfamiliar, the portage trails are the trails leading between lakes. That's how you travel around. You travel by canoe and you take these trails from lake to lake. That's how you get around. Got up early in the morning, uh, actually went running for about an hour and a half because I was near this long portage. So I got to do about an hour and a half trail run in the morning while I had, while I actually had access to a trail. Got back, had breakfast. My son was still sleeping. I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to portage everything ahead to the next lake so we can get an early, so we can get a quick start when my son wakes up and was kind of being kind of stupid in hindsight because I was in such a hurry. I wanted to get it done and get back before my son woke up. He has, oh, he's he's got to be getting close to 100 nights uh, in a tent, so he's very comfortable with it, but still he's a little kid, and I want to be around when he wakes up. So I was in a big hurry carrying about a 60-pound pack, and uh, this sounds really stupid, but I was kind of half-jogging. And got to a spot on the trail where there was a, a steep, um, a steep downhill that was covered in pine needles, which I, I can tell you now are slippery. My right foot slipped, and I didn't slip completely. Have my feet go out from under me, but I was kind of skating down on my right foot. And when my, when my, I hit something firm, my foot planted, and my, and I felt a crunch, and my right leg snapped. And so there we were. A long way from a long way from safety, and I've got a broken leg. Um, my right ankle was uh, was also dislocated. Uh, and I was quite a ways from camp, and this is in an area. This is a wilderness area. There's no cell signal. There's no nothing. So there we are, and that was when the adventure really started. So I did kind of a. Uh, quick little assessment and just kind of to start to think, what do I got to do right now? I got to get back to camp. And with my, with my, with one hand, I grabbed my foot to kind of stabilize my foot. And then with my free hand and my, and my, and, le, and my good leg, I did kind of a modified crab walk and, and butt scoot to get back to camp. I got back to camp who was staying close to the tent in case my, in case my son woke up early and, uh, he saw me coming into camp and he said, Oh, this doesn't look good. And I'm like, it's not good. This is not good. <laughs> and I kept, I was, you know, just kept, kept butt scooting over there and sat there and told him what happened, showed him my leg. 
my foot was kind of flopping around like it wasn't really connected real well to my leg. I if I was I thought I had a tib fib fracture uh a couple a couple inches above my ankle. And I said, "Well, you got to you got to get the packs and we got to start packing up. And we got to get out of here. I'm going to go in the tent. I'm going to wake Henry up, my son, tell him what's going on. And uh we got to pack up and get going. We're we're done." My buddy is a Minnesota boy, but he moved to Georgia a few years ago for work. And so he had flown and he had taken the time off and flown up for this trip. I just felt horrible because I'd ruined everything. Woke my son up, told him trip's over. We're heading back. He started crying and, uh, it was a real, it was, it was really heartbreaking because I was ruining this trip that he had looked forward to for, for a long time. But it was also so heartwarming because I was seeing that he is, you know, he's fallen in love with the outdoors and adventure and the active lifestyle, you know, just like he's, he's valuing those things like I do. So it was kind of a mixed emotions moment. And then he um, started to settle down. We just hung out in the tent and played some games and had some little, had some snuggle time in the tent. You know, he's seven and uh, my buddy got stuff packed up and by then the, the adrenaline had wore off and I couldn't I couldn't move my foot at all. If my if my foot moved at all, I would get a shot of pain. But worse, there was this feeling of clicking and grinding as all the bits and pieces would shuffle around in my leg whenever my foot moved, and that made me woozy. I'd get a hot flash and get uh, uh, get sweaty, feel nauseated. So I was kind of stuck there until I got it stabilized. But I I directed my buddy to go out and get the stuff I need. I'd already been through my first aid kit in my day pack. So I knew exactly what I had to work with. I knew exactly what we needed to do. So he went out and got a couple uh like nice straight one inch sticks and uh built the splint. And when I when I had the splint on, my my foot was stabilized so well that I was able to do anything. I could get up, I could walk, not walk, I mean I couldn't put any weight on it, but I could get up and move. I could move things around. I could help load the canoe. I know I was not far from far from 100%, but I was functional. And uh, I could paddle. And then we got out, got to got to lodge, drove to Grand Marais where we finally had a signal. And I called the I called the ER where I worked, and I said, "Well, I think I can just go home. I don't think I'm." I don't think I'd want to get stuck in the ER for six or eight hours with my kid. It's, it had already been a long, long day to, just to get out. So we, we, uh, I talked to one of the doctors that I work with, and he kind of double-checked my thought process. I just, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't doing anything stupid. And he said, oh, sounds like the limb is not compromised. It's not really an emergency. You can just keep going if you can handle it. So I had, I had nothing but... Tylenol and ibuprofen and two sticks taped to my leg and we drove all the way home and dropped my son off and my parents and then went another hour to the hospital where I work and got the x-rays and got this finally got to see exactly what I knew <laughs> what I knew five seconds after I hit the ground so that's kind of that's kind of my story from my recent adventure there are many wonderful people adding to the positive outlook of a backcountry and hunting lifestyle our goal is to join them in promoting that outlook.
Welcome to the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast, where we share stories, tips, and tactics of our outdoor pursuits. All right, everybody. So you just heard Paul Schlegel's story. I'm going to go ahead and introduce him. Um, Paul Schlegel and I met, oh, geez, it must be about four or five years ago now um, at the Zumbro Endurance Run down in southeastern Minnesota. Um, Paul was running his first 100-miler, and I was there for my first 50-miler. And we, we talked a little bit at the race, but not much, but we got to talking later on in the year, about a month later, when we were on our way out to help a couple other friends that's at a race out in Wisconsin and found we had a lot of similar interests, um, fishing, backcountry expedition type stuff. And, um, since then we became pretty good friends and had a lot of conversations over the years. And Paul's a, uh, a fortified donating member to BHA <laughs> as well as other organizations. Um, and, uh, we see likewise on a lot of a lot of these issues that we we talk about a lot on this podcast. But today we're going to talk about Paul's experience in the Boundary Waters as well as Paul's experience in emergency situations in general. Uh, Paul is a he has an interesting outlook on all this. Um, he's been around it a lot and he's seen a lot of things, but he also understands the importance of reacting in the right amount of time and in the right way in these situations too. Um, obviously with the boundary water story, you heard his story. He crawled back to a tent and said, don't worry, it's not a big deal. I understand what's going on. Let's just fix it and move on. Whereas as we all talked about earlier tonight, we would all be going, what the heck are we going to do in this situation? As Paul was telling his story, I watched everybody roll their ankle as he's telling the story of the break, <laughs> everybody moving their feet and squirming in their seats and just uncomfortable looking. I Chad cringe. I, <laughs> I cringe too. Yeah. I cringe way more the first time I heard it, but because I knew it was coming this time, but the last time when he told me it, I just, you know, my heart sank and I cringed. I'm just like, God, that's going to be miserable. But Paul's telling us about it here tonight and he's, he's got a smile on his face about it. Um, he's got a really good outlook on life and a really good outlook on this situation. So let's go ahead and get into Paul's story a little bit more and go back the way we normally do and go into kind of like your initial contact with the outdoors. Like what, what got you into the outdoors? Um, was it something growing up and all that stuff? And we'll kind of go through that and we'll go through like college and all that stuff as well. Yeah, like a lot of people, I and I I grew up in a grew up in a real serious hunting, fishing type of family. Um, we didn't have we didn't have the means to do to do uh, anything real anything real big. So it was all local, and it was all pretty much meat hunting, but a lot of small game, every kind of bird, um, whitetail, and you know we, we didn't do any western hunts or anything. Um, like I said, we didn't really have the means to do it, and my dad's not my na- my dad's not the kind of guy that does does anything real highbrow. It's all pretty, just pretty much straight up meat hunting, I guess, yeah. is what I grew up with. Yeah. 
I was in the I was in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, and I was pretty involved with that. And we did a lot of cam- uh, did a lot of camping. We did always do a lot of camping trips out west, um, national parks, wilderness areas. Uh, we didn't like I said we didn't have much, but my parents my parents scraped up enough to load up a whole bunch of kids in a pop up camper and <laughs> classic American road trip out west. So we did got to see a lot of you know got to see a lot of a lot of country that you know most other kids weren't seeing at that age. Yeah. Uh, I grew, I grew up right adjacent to, uh, a, a couple of, uh, about a 2000 acre, um, undeveloped woodland area that had a YMCA camp and just a lo- whole lot of sprawling land. And that was kind of my playground growing up. And this was at a time when this is at a time when we didn't have all the video games and social media and all this stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, if you were bored, you just go out go out and explore and you this is at a time when kids would be gone all day and the parents wouldn't know where they were they're at and we were all you know we were all getting into adventures before we knew what what that was got into winter camping and i just always had a kind of a sense for adventure and was always trying to push things a little further and getting myself into getting myself in over my head every now and then along the way (laughs) But I had a I had a real strong urge for toward winter camping and just to, trying to do extreme winter stuff when I was pretty little. Um, did some solo boundary waters trips when I was way too young and inexperienced to to know what the hell I was doing. But I was out there trying. I got a I got a I got a thirty I got a minus thirty sleeping bag from my parents for Christmas when I was sixteen. Because that's what I really wanted. Like my number one thing that I want. You know, you remember what it was like when you write. You know, you write down your yeah. Christmas wish list. You know, not a Mustang. When I not was, a Camaro. When I was sixteen. Yeah, other kid. At the at the time at the time I was growing up, the sixteen year olds wanted. They wanted more cassettes for their Atari console. And I wanted a I wanted a thirty below sleeping bag, and I got. I still have it. I mean, I still that's have awesome. it today. Um, and then, uh, in college, I, I kind of, you know, got busy into the whole college scene. I kind of got away from it a little bit, but I, I went to St. John's in central Minnesota, which has got a couple thousand acres of just prime woodland. And so I did a lot of, just did a lot of, um, uh, a lot of camping, just go back there, stay overnight. One year I built, uh, I built a shelter and lived in a shelter in the winter during J term. Um, which was, you know, mo- awesome. <laughs> most, co- most college kids weren't, you know, most college kids weren't doing that. So I was just, I was, I was doing, uh, trying to do more adventurous stuff with, and some, a lot of it was local. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, anything that involved plane tickets or anything. It was yeah. just trying to find, trying to find adventure and make adventure wherever you're at, I guess. Cool. I think that's a, I think that's a really cool thing to recognize now too because you're raising a kid is that you can find adventure just right in your backyard if you really look for it oh yeah it's always there so i think that's cool (laughs) it's a really cool aspect so yeah you went you went to college at st john's and then from there you kind of started a career in what was it was in chemistry yeah i was a chemist i became a chemist to my in my my first uh Kind of my in my former life, I'd call it now. Um, I was a chemist, and then I got involved into. Uh, I, then I got away from the chemistry part and got into more of a management 
uh, more of a management role that led to a lot of travel. And for quite a few years, I was traveling all over the world. And it was it was really cool when I was young and single. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a way to it was a for one thing, it was a way to always stay single. And yeah, and it was <laughs> after after the fun wore off. You know, at first it was it was a new adventure. I was you know, I was traveling all over the world. I was at the deal, you know, I was at the table for, you know, multi-million dollar deals and it was, it was cool and exciting. But then when it wasn't anymore, then I realized it was just keeping me from all the other things that I wanted to be doing. You know, I was hardly ever home. And, uh, during, during the travel years, everything went on, everything kind of went on the back burner. But before that, I, I branched out in some other areas that, that, uh, I didn't get into with my dad and my family. Um, I got really got into fly fishing was just super, super, super trout crazy for quite a few years. Um, got into musky fishing. Those are both a couple of things, um, didn't ever do growing up. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people go through that. You don't necessarily just follow in the footsteps of your, your, your family. Yeah. That's a starting point. And then you, I 100% agree with that. One and, way or another, you get into some other things. Yeah, and, and you you said it earlier. You said your dad was a meat hunter and stuff like that, and musky fishing and fly fishing for trout definitely do not fall in the categories of somebody that's out there for meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. We were all right experience. I just got done Poetic. with a couple day. You just got done with a couple day trip with my with my dad and my son. While uh, while my leg heals, I'm not real good at launching and trailering a boat right now, so. Uh, my dad took us out for a couple, and we were just talking about that. We had we had one day where we, it was just nothing fancy. It was just most it was mostly panfish, you know, on some central Minnesota lakes. And the first day it wasn't too good. And he, um, my, my dad, he's all apologetic about it because you know we didn't we didn't have a bunch we didn't have a bunch of fish for a meal. I said. <laughs> I used to musk, you know, I used to musky fish over a hundred days a year, I mean, I, in 12, 14 hour days. And I never didn't have any, I didn't have anything to eat at the end of the day. <laughs> That's the epitome of, of being a fisherman to spend that much time. Yeah. You know, the fishermen are, are usually well known for their patience. And that would be, that would be the, about as patient as you can get. Yeah. You know? I think yeah. Musky and that's still, a, that's still a, a really foreign that's still just such a foreign idea to him he still even after all this time you know all these years he can't wrap his brain around that at all yeah um so i mean outdoors what outdoors wise just started out you know following the family you know following along with the rest of the family and then getting off into way more just way more extreme stuff than than anything my my family ever did yeah, so was it so since you can remember cuz I can relate to this and we just kind of talked about this since you can remember have you always kind of pushed the the level of intensity on things you did cuz I definitely know that I did that when I was a kid and it drove my parents crazy and it yeah. still does and and obviously with the things you're doing now and the things you know we've done together and stuff like that, it still pushes it to them. But I, it's always been that way for you. It hasn't. It wasn't like a, hey, I'm out of school now. Life's boring. Let's live it up and try something different. It's just always been there. Yeah, I mean, looking back on the kind of on the arc of my life, not only with the outdoors, but but just about everything. Yeah. I'm <laughs> I'm the kind of person that does it 150 percent 
or or not at all mm-hmm. and just kind of always pushing pushing it harder and harder and harder and trying to do things more extreme that goes all the way back to when I was a little kid and you know if somebody else could jump their bike 10 feet I was going to jump at 15 feet <laughs> and once I could jump 15 I was going to build a bigger jump to see if I could do 20 <laughs> that's <You know>? awesome <laughs> totally I think I think probably all of us sitting in this room which this is our this is our fullest house we've ever had yep. yeah myself Brian uh Rick's here, Joe's here, Chad's here, and of course Paul's telling the story. And that that I think all of us here sitting, we're we're kind of your audience right now, listening to that boundary water story. But all of us are kind of kindred spirits in in that pushing the limits and getting out there and kind of wanderlust and wanting to experience things. So it's cool to it's cool to hear from your perspective on this is a little bit more advanced than ours in 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 the realm of being comfortable. And I think we talked about this a little bit before we started, but just being comfortable in some of those emergency situations because you've been in enough of them now uh, to have that perspective where I think a lot of our listeners, myself included, if some serious things happened in the backcountry, I would would hope I would respond with a level head, but you don't really know until you're in that situation is the problem. So hearing from somebody like you... This episode, I'm really excited to to dig into some of this stuff because hearing from someone with that perspective, that advanced perspective, I think is important for everybody. Yeah, and, and that's something we we haven't even really got to yet, but you kind of hit on it a little bit in your story. Is so now you you made a transition and started a new career um, because, like you said, you can't you can't really ever be anything but single in the career you were in before and that's not what you wanted so now you obviously have a kid you're married um so at some point you made a change and from your chemist job to the managed position management position and then you went back to school to become i'm an er nurse yeah at a time when i had already been profoundly unhappy with the wrong direction my career life had taken I ended up. Uh, I had a surgery that I, I got an infection from the surgery, and it's it's a it's a it's a long story. But I had a long hospitalization, and that happened at a time when I was just desperate, trying to figure out what to do next. Um, I was miserable in the in the in the management role, and I but and I'd also been away from the chemistry for so long that there didn't seem to be a way back. Yeah. To what I sh- there didn't seem to be a way back to what I sh- to what I should have stayed with in the first place. I was way too young to just grind it out to retirement. Uh, I just I didn't know what to do, and then I was in the hospital for a long time, and that was literally a life changing uh, a life changing experience. I so I looked around, I saw saw all these people that were having a you know a real meaningful impact on other people, and and the more I thought about how much meaning and purpose they had in their work, the more shallow and empty and worthless my work seemed like. I was yeah. just a big, you know, I was just a cog in a giant corporate machine. And, and I was in the hospital day after day after day and just, you know, thinking and just thinking. And I thought, wow, these people, if they have a good day, if they have a good day at work, they're making a big difference in someone else's life. What happens if I have a good day at work? I 
I add value for a bunch of shareholders that I don't even know. Like, what am I doing? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. It's cool that you came to that realization. A lot of people wouldn't take the risk to totally jump ship into something else. So you got, so from that experience, you got into the medical field then. Yeah, I actually, I was planning to go, um, go to med school and my, my, my undergrad degree was chemistry, but all throughout high school, but then especially in college, the more chemistry I had, and I know this will sound funny to most people, but the more, the more chemistry I had, the more I just loved it. I mean, just, it just lit me up. And when it came time to decide, I thought, why would I go to med school when I, you know, I've already found something that I really, really, really love. Yeah. So I, so I just, so I stuck with chemistry and then 15 years later, ended up in the hospital trying to figure out what to do and thought, oh, I got to go, I got to figure out how to get into healthcare and <laughs> figure out what, what would I do? And I, I, I was young enough. I might've been able to go to, um, I might've been able to go to the med, the med school route, but while I was there, I was talking with anyone who would spend time with me while I was trying to discern what to do with the rest of my life. And so many of the, so many of the doctors and some of the, even some of the mid-levels, they had a, you know, they had a over, they had an overbearing caseload. They were on call way too much. Their job was intruding way too much and into the, into their entire life. They were stressed, seemed like a meat grinder. It was exactly what I was trying to get away from. And, and then in some of the other roles, there were people that, the people that were more hands-on and lower level that were so happy with what they were doing. And I, as I thought and thought, you know, as I was thinking more about it, I thought, I kind of started thinking more about nursing and I had, it took a long to believe me. I mean, coming from the background I came from, it took a long time to get past the whole male nurse thing and all the stigma. And, but you know, it, it took a while, but eventually I, I, you know, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm comfortable enough in my masculinity that I, I, I don't need, <laughs> I don't need a profession to try to bolster my manhood. So, so I just, I went for it. And also the, the great recession of, uh, the great recession and, and, uh, of 2000, 2008, 2009, that helped quite a bit too. I got, I got the, the nudge that I, that I might not have otherwise made, but yeah. When when the time came, then I made the most of it. So you went back to school and went through all that, and I'm sure that was kind of a another grind for you. Because did you work your old job? Yeah, I was work. I was working. I was, and I through part of it. And I, uh, we, you know, we, you know, you know this, Joe. We talked about it before. I was yeah. also a musky guide. Yeah. Through most <laughs> of those transition years, which is kind of. Uh, a weird mashup of the outdoors and, <laughs> and, and, uh, getting into the, you know, the career transition. But I had, I was just hardcore, hardcore into musky fishing for quite a few years. And then I started doing some, some guide trips on, on the weekend. And, and even during the week when I got to kind of dictate my schedule to a large extent with, in that other job. So I had some I had some, I had kind of a little, kind of a little side, some side action going with musky guiding and then had to figure out how to make the transition from one, from one full-time career to another, to another full-time career while I have not, while I'm now married and have a baby on the way and going to college is a little bit more complicated when you have the responsibility of a family and a house payment <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. You can't just you can't just pull the plug on all those things and go to school. 
it's it's a lot harder. Yeah. And so my part-time side gig musky guiding became uh, full-time uh, musky guiding. <laughs> and so I guided June, <laughs> June, July, August was was all I could take. I guided on Mille Lacs in, a, in, in, Minis, in central Minnesota and a few other a few other central Minnesota lakes. Um, and it was, it started out, it took, it took a, it took a year, you know, it took a year or two to, to, uh, to build it up. This is before social media and some of the other things really kind of took over the guiding business like it has now. Yeah. Now you have to be kind of a, a you, you have to be kind of your own producer and yeah. promoter and, you know, you got to have a YouTube channel. Well, you don't have to, but I mean, a lot of people do. And that's, yeah. I, this is, this is long enough ago that it was before all of that stuff. So took, uh, took some time to build it up, but when it was going, I mean, I was, uh, you know, I, I'd have a day, I'd have one or two days off in, in July or August. Otherwise I'd be on the water 12, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. God. And there's so many people out there that wish for that, that they could be out on the water that much every single day. After like two weeks, that's got to be misery. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it's in, and I'm sure any guide in any guide business will tell you the same thing. The people that don't get to do it that much think that that is just got to be the greatest. You know, why would you ever <laughs> leave that? Uh, you know, especially to especially go to nursing school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things but, tend to lose their passion when they become your job. Yeah, it does. And I mean, you got, you really have got to be a, a people person. You got to be a teacher. You have to be a cheerleader and a coach. There's so many, it is not just going out there and chasing muskies. And a lunch lady. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to school. Yeah. And, you know, and part, yeah. And part of it is, you know, just flat out babysitting, like, do you have, you know, people show up, they don't know what it takes to take care of themselves for a long day on the water, <laughs> especially when it gets into October and November oh, and you got people God. that are in way over their head. Yeah. Um, you know, every, the, everything is, you know, it looks like a scene from the deadliest catch where it's so rough <laughs> and there's, there's spray. So there, everything has got a coat of ice on it. And you got people, if, when you got people in the boat, well, I get I I would get a lot more choosy about who I would take out in October and November. So there was a little bit of a a little bit of a vetting process, but then you know even that even that you, you know when you're in school, you got a house payment, <laughs> you got someone who wants to you know you got someone who wants to you know give you four hundred and fifty bucks to spend a day in the boat. <laughs> Most of the time, I would take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes I regretted it. There's. You know, there was days when there was no no amount of money that would have that would have made up for what I had to put up with yeah. in a day, and that's when it becomes a job. Yeah. It's not it's not like it was when you're fishing by yourself or with your buddies. Yeah, that helped. I mean, that really helped a lot though. Later later in life, like with my son, and even even fishing with my friends. That during those years, when it comes to fishing, I really just got it all out of my system. I mean, I don't have I caught I caught huge 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 muskies. I put other people on huge huge muskies and tons of them, and I just got to do it all in those years. And now I don't. I am so laid back when I go fishing. I'm just happy to be out. It just those years just kind of matured me 
like 30 or 40 years. Now, like, now I'm just like an old guy. <laughs> but what I imagine now. it's like being an old guy where it's just like, God, it's just nice to be alive today. And I'm, I'm, out, I'm, you know, I'm just out in the water. Oh, look. Oh, there's a loon. Oh, that's, you know, this is nice. It's just good to be out. I don't care if I catch any fish. That's great. That's so cool. It's cool to hear that story too, because, you know, I think, I think there's people that can relate in some ways, but just that, just where you were in life and what you decided to do is pretty rare that somebody would have the wherewithal to say, hey, I'm not happy in this. I'm going to switch it up. And then to go to school, be married, have a have a baby on the way, <laughs> guiding muskies. It, it sounds like, I mean, it, it sounds like a movie, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like this guy that's doing all these things. And I wanted to get in a little bit to, as we move forward, your your ER experience and how that has kind of matured you and helped you as a as an outdoorsman and even what you've done in the trail running community some of the stories surrounding that I know Joe was has mentioned some things to us and uh I think that I think that'll be a takeaway for our listeners to hear your perspective on those things and uh and and kind of just where you're coming from with some of that and the things that you've seen and your and your thoughts on some of that so what what you started your 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 ER nursing career and i you mentioned this earlier and i was like anybody who's listening and you said you had to kind of deal with the being a, a nurse and being a man anybody who would have anything to say about that let them walk into an ER room for a day and then see how much of a man they are <laughs> yeah right. there are there are areas of nursing where there are a lot more men where men are a lot more prevalent and ER is, ER is one of them. And it's also for the adrenaline junkie kind of person, which is what musky fishing is. And that's what, you know, all the other things pushing to the extreme were is what I was all about. So it became a really good fit for me. Like if, if I'm not just like, you know, when things are, when things are, when things are the craziest that all that seems to be when I'm in my, when I hit my flow state, yeah. like, the crazier it gets, just the more the more focused and and that's I mean that's just when I'm at my best. When it's just kind of mellow, that's when I feel like I'm the more when I'm sloppier, I'm not as focused. It's just just like like everything else, when it's kind of going to the limit, uh, that was when that's when I'm that's when I like it the best. Yeah, and that's I've I've noticed that with, with certain things in, at work for me over the years, and I call it control and chaos. That's what it is for me is when crap hits the fan and we're so overwhelmed with stuff that we can't handle it. That's kind of where I'm like, all right, well, we have to buckle down and just take care of it. Mm-hmm. And I seem to do better in those situations than the situations of, yeah, we got a couple things to do here and there. Well, we'll just let them sit for a couple of days. So yeah. I, yeah, I kind of get where you're coming from where the chaos comes in. It's it's almost like you're forced to just sit and focus and tackle each task one at a time. Is that how you decided upon being an ER nurse instead of maybe intensive care where for the most part, they're probably, you know, asleep or I I guess I don't really have that. No, there's, there's some, I mean, there's some, well, I had, I mean, I had some, I had some ideas of what I thought I would like, but as much as I could, I tried to keep an open mind when I went through clinic, you have clinical experience and you rotate through a whole bunch of different areas. So you are given kind of a, uh, just a real broad base of, of experience. And that's also your time 
to kind of get to try different things out and i and i really liked and i really liked it the but back to what you know back to what you were pointing to about that time of my life that was when i really got into ultra running and uh and nursing school it was i mean it was a transition and it was a just a it was just a huge transition in so many different ways um in fact uh uh i did my first trail run my first trail ultra marathon when i was just i was doing the prerequisite classes before i was before i'd even got into the got into the nursing program part of it and I'd always been a trail runner. I live within running distance of a state park that's got about 30 miles of trail. And I, I, uh, so I was always a trail runner before I even knew that was a thing. Yeah. And this was, I mean, a lot of the people that have just gotten into it now would think this is funny, but this is back in the days when you'd still sign up for a race by mailing in, <laughs> mailing in an application and, and, uh, doing the check. Yeah, with a check, exactly. Nice. You know, there was no online sign-up, and you couldn't, uh, you know, if you you know, if you know, wanted to check somebody out, you couldn't just look at their ultra sign-up and see what races they'd done and nothing like that. It was all on paper, and there, there wasn't even, the results weren't even online at that time. It was all, um, you know, it was all pretty old school. But I, I like a lot of people i got into trail running in in kind of a kind of a boom time after the um uh shoot i just forgot the name of the born uh, to run yeah born to run books and that, and that book, honestly yeah. had a it, it sounds kind of cheesy but that honestly had quite a bit of influence in me in college i in high school and college i was like football wrestler and lifted weights and i weighed 50 pounds more than i do now and then when I was in college, I got into mountain biking at a time when, like, when mountain biking, this is like the late 80s when mountain biking was like a brand new invention and the bikes weighed like 35 or 40 pounds. And I loved it, man. I just loved it. And then when I got out of college, I wanted to get a road bike and I got a road bike and I just went crazy on it. I mean, I just started piling on the miles. And I was still hitting the gym, and I was still more worried about how much I could bench press than than how good I was riding a bike. But after doing that for a few years, then I I saw you know I thought God I really like this. I think I could be good at it if I, you know, if I really tried. And so I quit. So I just I you know I just I'd quit lifting weights. I'd do push ups, pull ups, you know, just body weight stuff once a week. And I just started doing tons of cardio, and that was how I got into ultra and endurance sports. And I did triathlon for a long, long time. Um, that came after cycling and then triathlon. And then I had that long hospitalization that I, that kind of led me to the career change. Um, I had a, a long series of knee surgeries. I was in the hospital for weeks and had uh, a total of seven knee surgeries to, uh, to, um, take care of an infection that I got from the initial surgery and then try to try to just restore what was left of my knee. And, um, after I got out of the hospital, I had a pick line in my arm. I had a you know a, a line that went all the way to my heart, and I had I was on IV antibiotics for two months after I got out of the hospital. I had a little pack, and I had to change my IV bag a couple times a week, and I didn't walk for six months. It was oh my it god! It was a, that whole that whole. I mean, not only not only that because it led me to a career change, but it was life changing in a whole bunch of ways. Um. 
kind of met my wife just before all that stuff happened. And before that, I had just kind of always burned through one girlfriend after another. And that slowed me down. And is that, I mean, <laughs> I, probably, I need somebody to help out. So like, Julie, stick around. I probably wouldn't have got married. I probably would have never had a family. I probably would have never slowed down. If just all that get them on one happen. leg and that's it. <laughs> that's the trick I came, off, I came out of all that and I couldn't ride a bike. And so then I got it more, in, but I could run. Everything turned out the opposite of what they told me. And so then I ran and I got into trail running and, but I got into racing right about the same time that I was just before nursing school. I ran the superior 50 and then I did, uh, then I did, a hundred K that's also up on the superior hiking trail. And then I did my first hundred miler. And while I was still in my first semester doing the prereqs, I found out about winter racing in the strangest way. One of my classmates that I had in microbiology, I had my, I had micro, she was, she was my lab partner in micro lab. And, you know, you go there and you do your experiment, you know, you you had some, everyone's had some high school or college science, you know, you go there and you do your experiment, but you also got time to, to BS and chit chat. So somehow the topic of running comes up and it's like, oh yeah, I'm a runner too. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mostly just do trail running, but yeah, I, I, I've run quite a bit. Really? I'm a trail runner too. That's all I do. I don't ever run on the road. <laughs> And then, you know, it just goes back and forth and we find out we're, bo- we're both getting into trail running. We're both at the same place. And I'm like, yeah, I actually, as a matter of fact, I got my first trail race coming up, um, pretty soon. It's the superior 50. And she says, really, I'm doing the marathon. And it was her first race. <laughs> nice. So we go up and I, and you know, the conversation goes a little further and I said, yeah, you might, this might, I know this sounds crazy to people, but I'm going to run a hundred miler. This is just this is just the start. Yep. She said, Oh, I don't think that's crazy. If you she said if you do a hundred miler, you should really do arrowhead. And she's from way out she's <laughs> Which from, is completely different. <laughs> yeah. She's from way up in the she's from way up in nowhere. She grew up in a logging family in northern Minnesota, grew up in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and the arrowhead practically went through her backyard. Ah. Uh. But I'm like, Arrowhead, what's that? And so I look it up and, you know, some time's gone by. So now the internet has come along and you can like <laughs> look up a race on a website. <laughs> so, so I look at, I look up this arrowhead thing and it's a 135 mile winter race, which is, that's, that's held during what is statistically the coldest week of the whole year in Northern Minnesota. It's 135 miles from international falls to tower, Minnesota, and it's all on trail mostly almost completely unsupported i looked this up and i thought there's no way in hell i'm ever doing that <laughs> so the next, a week later we had micro lab and i said yeah i looked up that i looked up that arrowhead thing there's no way i could do that and then i did i did my first 100 and i did and did another another 100 and then i had the and then i i mean it, it just it just hit me i was just like I got to do, I got to do these winter races. We got back up though. Cause it was after your first hundred that you started talking about it. 
Because it was on the way to Kettle. You started yeah. talking to me about it. And you said, you know, you're a bigger frame guy. You'd probably be pretty good at these winter races, too. You should really check these out. Paul was looking for a tag along. Yeah. <laughs> someone I, else to yeah, sign I, up, too. <laughs> this was, well, to kind of set the stage a little bit, I did some 100-milers, and then I was going to do, I did some 100-milers, and then I was planning to do the following. I was, I had one more year, like, kind of, like, just getting some more experience. And then the following year, I was planning to do, the gnarly bandit, which is a Minnesota and Wisconsin series of races. It's, it's 400 milers and a hundred K all fairly close together in one summer. It's pretty tough. There's not very many people that get through it. I was planning to do that. And then I was playing with my son in the park and I tweaked my knee and it was, it's my bad knee. That's bad. I mean, I'm just, when anything, anytime anything goes wrong with that knee, I always wonder, is this it? You know, what am I going to do next? Because this, you know, this could be it. Yeah, I remember having that conversation. Absolutely. You, you basically said, like, it could be bad. It could be to a point where I can't walk again. Right. I didn't know. Yeah, at that time, I didn't know if my knee was going to get well enough to, to, to walk, much less ever run. I didn't know if I was ever going to run again. And I remember... I couldn't, I was signed up for a race, which I couldn't run because I'd hurt my knee and we're, we're, um, pacing and, and crewing for one of our friends. And, and I planned to go to this race. We were going to, you know, a bunch of guys, we we're going to take my truck and I can, I can't even walk without, I, I can't even walk right. But you know, I'd made it, made this commitment. So I was like, oh, let's go. Turned out to be the, the best thing I could have done. Got through this weekend, just really helped me get my head on straight a little bit. And I remember long, you know, long road trip out there and back and talking on the way back. Said, any of you guys ever think about winter racing? And everyone, everyone, it went around, it went around the circle and everyone said, hell no, <laughs> for, for one reason or another. And I said, and I said, I thought I've been thinking about, I've wanted to do, I've wanted to win a race. And for a whole bunch of reasons, I put it off another year and another year and another year. And now I got this knee and I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance. And I remember saying like, just like fighting, like feeling myself starting to get choked up and I'm fighting it back. And I said, if my, if I get to run again, I'm doing, I'm doing the winter races. I'm doing all of them. Yeah. I remember having that conversation. Yeah. With you. And when you, so let's fast forward a little bit. So you decided to sign up for Tuscopia 80 and kind of made it pulled, <laughs> pulled the audible, the same audible I had pulled that same year where I bumped up a race and said, no, let's see if I can do the one. Yeah, that was part of the reason why I did it. <laughs> so <laughs> I bumped right. up from a 50 to a hundred. And then I told Paul about that. And then it was like, it was the same situation. It was like a few weeks before the race where yeah. you contacted Helen and Chris and said, you know, can I bump up to the 160? And they allowed it because of your experience. <laughs> yeah. You have. So I did exactly. My knee started getting better. In fact, I was in Glacier at the end of the summer. I was out in Glacier on a fam, just a family trip. I think my son was three and we were doing some hiking and I was just, my knee was just starting to come around and start to feel better. I did some hiking. We did some hiking that was a little bit too much for my son. There was there was a couple couple times where I had him up on my shoulders and I was doing the last couple miles with my kid on my shoulder and I was really worried about my knee, really worried. 
but if you know the next day it, it it was okay and i thought i'm gonna go run i don't have any of my running gear on my vest i don't have any a hand bottle nothing i just went out and ran and it was great is that oh, the grizzly God, was, bear huh? was that the grizzly bear? yeah <laughs> yeah don't you should not go running by yourself in grizzly country um <laughs> <laughs> that is, Paul's got Paul's got a problem. He just that runs is a into really dumb thing to do. I'm sure most of, most of, most of the people that listen to your show know enough about about grizzly country to know that's a bad idea. And I knew it was a bad idea too. But I was I was so antsy to test it out and get out there. That I said, oh man! You know, I I had done umpteen trips in Alaska, backcountry fishing. Never seen a bear. And same thing, Yellowstone, bat, you know, Slough Creek, backcountry, fly fishing trips, all over the place. Never seen a bear. I'd cut some really fresh-looking tracks, like it's raining, and this is like, holy crap, this is fresh. <laughs> and seen bears from the road, but I'd never seen them. I'd, I did all this stuff, never seen a bear. So, I mean, I thought, I, I, didn't, I didn't just take off without thinking about it. I thought, I am not going to see a bear. <laughs> I mean, I've done all this stuff and never seen a bear. So I leave from the campground. Like usual, when I'm, when I'm camping with my family, I'd get up at like 5 and run. I'd run from like 5 to 9, which is about when they're finally waking up and getting going. So I get up at 5, and I do, and I do this run up to this high alpine lake. So it's all up to this lake and then all back down. And then I'm on the way up and I'm, I'm parallel in this river and it's just waterfall after waterfall. It's so cool. I'm so, I I mean, I, it's hard to convey how happy I am to be running again, to have it, just to be able to, to lose it and get it back again. It just makes you appreciate things in a profound way and makes you realize how you take everything for granted. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was just like, it was like, you know, you know, there was times when I, I, same thing. I had that, like, I'm getting choked up feeling. I'm just running. Yeah. It's just joy. Yeah. I stop. I'm looking at a waterfall. I hear something crack. And my first thought was, (laughs) like everybody, you just think, you think stupid. But with just like a fraction of a second after my first thought, I thought, no, there's no way that's a bear. And then I look, and you're gonna think this is you're gonna think this is ridiculous, but <laughs> I'm looking, I'm I'm up high, uh, the trail's up high, down, oh, following along this canyon, and I'm looking, and I see I see some movement, like thirty. It's kind of still, it's 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 downhill, down the slope from me, and it's just following the slope, going in the opposite direction, so it's right below me. It's really thick. I see some movement, and then when it came into a little clearing. It was so freaking big. This is the stupid thing. <laughs> the first thing, the very first thing that I thought of was, I didn't, I didn't know that there were bison and glacier. Why the hell didn't I ever? Why didn't I ever hear about that? Because all I could see was this whole clearing was just shaggy hair, and then it moved a little bit more, and I thought. Shit, that's a bear. <laughs> it was just, it was like, it looked like the size of a car. And I just froze and then I just let it go. And then I started just moseying back on the trail. And I thought, oh, I got to come back this way. So I gathered up a whole bunch of stuff and I put a pile of stuff on the trail so I would know when I cut, when I, when I came through that area on the way back, I would know. 
Then I get up to this alpine, I'm above tree line. Now I'm kind of on guard, but I'm above tree line. And I thought, oh, this is like being on the, on the moon. There's not going to be anything up here. It's just rock. But I'm up on this lake and this lake is just loaded with trout. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of a rich food source. <laughs> uh, there's not, oh, there's not going to be a bear up here right now. And so I'm hanging out and it's just, I'm just soaking it all in. I'm so happy that I'm running just even being able to walk hard. I'm, I mean, I'm just being, I'm just able to, ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy to just be there and just walking. Yeah. I start heading back and the sun's just clearing the ridge and I'm, I'm going into the sun. I just leaving the lake and I, I, I came probably 30 feet from T-bone and another bear. Oh. It was about two <laughs> steps. It was probably two steps. Off, it's coming down slope. It's about two steps off the trail, and it sees me long before I saw it. So, I mean, I look up, and I'm like, you know, skid to a stop. There's a bear. I've got a cliff bar and a can of bear spray. You know, everyone, you know, there again, everyone's got different opinions about bear spray. So, you know, that might, you know, that might, that might initiate another chuckle or two, but. It's better than just the cliff bar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's all I got. And my phone. And. I, I take a couple steps back. I pull the little safety, the little plastic clip off my bear spray. And I just start talking to the bear and say, hey, bear. Good morning, bear. <laughs> the bear gets on. Now the bear's on the trail and it takes a few steps toward me. And I'm just kind of, I'm standing, I'm, I'm upright and just kind of slowly, you know, I don't know if this is all complies with the latest and greatest prevailing theory of what to do in a grizzly encounter, but I'm just talking to the bear and the bear is like kind of like doing this chomping motion with its mouth. Like it's kind of like tasting the air and it's said, I can see it's like salivating and like, Oh, this is getting, this is getting exciting. And then I'm happy I, I, I had run, my camera. But... I pulled up a couple, I pulled, I pulled off a couple shots and then I hit a video and I'm like videoing this bear and I'm talking to this bear. It takes a few steps toward me, stops, it's looking, and then it just keeps going down slope right where it was going. And I'm like relieved. And then I kind of turn the camera and I kind of narrate, like, I just saw this bear and I saw this. Uh, and I'm like, now the adrenaline's kicking in and I, I'm just trembling. It's crazy. When you run into, yeah, when you run into a bear like that, it, it, there's something about that that is just unlike anything else. And being that close, like what you just described, I mean, you did you did everything right. You, I mean, pulling out the phone and taking pictures and video that that was ballsy. But <laughs> at least you got some you got something to to show for it. But that you did everything right and carrying spray and and talking that way from from the guys that I know and and a few of them have spent years and years and years in grizzly con- country and close quarters with them. And that's you did everything right. Yeah, so that's crazy though to see two of them. And it, do you have any idea if it was the same one? No, the second one was a lot smaller. It was definitely okay. it was definitely a grizzly, but it was a lot smaller. The first one was massive. It was crazy how big that thing wow. was. Wow, that's cool. That's a cool story though. Yeah. Out on a trail yeah. run, I ran into two grizzlies while I was out there. Literally, so that, literally, yeah. So that trip was in August, and then I got home, and I'm like, it's on. I'm signing up yeah. for all the winter races. I got a lot of catching. I haven't run. I got, I've had the whole summer off from running. I got a lot of catching up to do. And then in my 
normal way. It's just, like I said, it's 150% or nothing. So there's this thing in the, in the Midwest winter ultra scene called the, the order of the rim thewers. And the rim thewers comes from Norse mythology. It's these band of frost giants or something like that. It's, it's a series of, uh, it's, it's Tuscobia 160, which is a 160-mile winter ultra in northern Wisconsin. Then and that's Arrowhead, usually like New Year's or first week of January. It's yeah. in a cold, and, and cold then time Arrow, And then two weeks later is Arrowhead 135. And then two weeks after that is the Arrowhead's the one in northern Minnesota. And then two weeks after that is Actif Epica, which is in Manitoba uh, near, near Winnipeg. And they're, it's all in six weeks, and it's not enough time for recovery, and it's really hard, and not very many people ever get through it. And when I did it, there was only, I think, three? Three or four that had Three that had ever foot. done it on foot. Most yeah. of the people that do these winter ultras are on bike, on the fat tire winter bikes. Yeah. Probably two-thirds of them are on bike. And... uh I couldn't, I didn't, I've never done it. I was a total rookie. I didn't have a qualifying race, so I could only get into Tuscobia 80. And I thought, I don't, this is not, I, I've never even done this, but I want to, I want to do the a long race. I want a shot at this rim through thing, which is just, just idiotic now thinking back <laughs> on it. Because to be a total rookie and think that I should be doing the rim through series is just, it's so far over my head. <laughs> but, I petitioned my way into the 160 based on a bunch of winter experience and something else I said in this carefully composed email that I sent the race directors. <laughs> None of it was BS, but um, I, I said something. I, I know, well, actually, I know the one thing that resonated with one of the race directors was that I said, I know that I can finish the 80. There's no doubt about it. I don't know if I'll, I don't know if I can do the 160, but. I'll get to the turnaround and if I can't do, if I, if I'm, if I'm just, if I'm dead, I'm going to play it safe and hang back. Cause I got other races and this is the time when I need to, I need to learn and, and work my way up like I'm supposed to. I won't put your race at risk, but I would rather, if I stop at the halfway point and I'm signed up for the 160, it would count as a DNF. And I said, I would rather DNF courageously trying the 160 than to just finish the 80. No. That's cool. So they let me in. And then I I went on to finish all three of them. And the first one was the first one was hard, but it it only got it only got worse. I had a medical emergency in the second race and and that carried into the third race. I was weak and probably shouldn't have even been starting the third race, but I finished them all and at that time, it was by it was without a doubt my greatest accomplishment in in endurance sports. Yeah, and in that situation wow. with the order, <clears throat> I think nobody of their right mind should be finishing all three of them. It's to recover from, like you said, the recovery time six weeks, and you're doing you're doing almost five hundred miles in six weeks of pulling a sled with your winter gear in it or backpack and active or whatever. Yeah. But you're pulling weight. You're not just running a flat course i mean Tuscobia for the most part is flat but arrowhead's not a flat course it's not an easy course and all these are remote tough to get to sit Tuscobia, i guess is not 
it, there is towns along the way, but for the most part, you're out there by yourself. Yeah, you got to know how to take care of yourself. Yeah. Most people, this is kind of a subgroup of a subgroup of crazy extreme people. So no one will know, and I'm sure I should back up, no one will know what, what I'm talking about. You're on foot, but there's a required there's a required gear list that you have to have with you. So you're running and, and more and honestly more often you're 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 just like real fast power hiking it. Yeah. But you're pulling a sled. There are special racing sleds that are made for this. Uh they're called a it's called a pulk. Um like you would like you would bring things into the backcountry in a lot of places, but these are these are a little bit more race specific. Um and you have a whole bunch of you 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 have a um a stove and insulated bottles and a minimum amount of food and a bivy sack and a, a, a the required sleeping bag and so forth so you've got you're basically set up so that if something happens yeah. you can survive for 24 hours basically it, is how at it's least set up. Yeah. yeah and the the kind of one of the kind of the ethos of the whole sport is self rescue if something yeah. happens if you're exhausted if you get stuck in a blizzard if whatever if something happens you can just hunker down and get to the next checkpoint but you get yourself out don't nobody's yeah. going to come get you and it just gets more, that it becomes more and more that way the the harder it gets when you get into the big races like Iditarod well and that's what I was just going to get to we should fast forward and get to that cuz this last year you had the opportunity. And I don't remember how did you get it from winning to Scobia? I won to Scobia yeah. two won years Scobia. ago. Yeah. I went back and it was a real it was a real hard year. The conditions were real extreme. There were a lot of fast and more experienced people that weren't there. That was definitely a part of it. I mean I, I definitely am not the I'm not even close to the to being in the top echelon of this of this sport. But it was really tough and it was kind of a race of attrition. It had an extremely low finish rate for that race. Yeah. And I was the, just, I was the fastest of the people that finished, what, but what was a the- year before that, I will say for in, in to give myself a little bit of credit, I, I told him, Jewel, I told my wife, I said, I think I can win that race. The next time I go, I'm really going to be ready yeah. and I'm going to race to win. Yeah. I'm not going to be there to just finish. Yeah. And, and that, the the year you won, was it five people that finished the one sixty in the male category? I think there was there was a total of five. There was I think four guys and a woman. Yeah, it's and that was, was it was humidity and cold. Yeah, and, and it was a, it was hard. Wow. It was twenty eight below, super humid. So I mean, just everything, everything was soaked. just a massive crust of ice yeah. and frost. Like you couldn't open your jack, like things, problems that I had never had before were all of a sudden like, oh my God, I, mean, I can't, I can't, I can't, zippers don't work. Nothing works. Problems nobody should ever have to do. Yeah. With. You're just stuck. <laughs> so, but you know, you've got, you got to problem solve it. Okay. Now, oh, now what? You know, yeah. I mean, this is, this is bad. It's like middle of the night. I haven't slept in like 40 hours. I have got a zero bag. Yeah. Because my wife raced that year, she had my she had my super good feathered friends minus twenty five bag. I had the zero bag because I wanted to race fast and light, and I was racing to win. And it was twenty eight below, and I had a zero bag, and I was dead, and I couldn't I couldn't stop the bivy. I mean, it was it, I had to keep moving. Yeah, you have. To I had zero. Situation. I had no choice. I yeah. was. 
100, you know, 100, 120, 125 miles into that race, like 40, 40 hours, you know, 40 hours on my feet and stopping was not an option. Yeah. <laughs> there was no, there was no slowing, there was no slowing down. Yeah. I had every stitch of clothing on. There was, oh, God. there was nothing to do, but keep going. <laughs> it was awful. So you won that and then you I won got... that race and that is a golden ticket race. Um, the winners of each category draw are drawn. And the winner gets a guaranteed entry into the Iditarod Trail Invitational 350, which is, I mean, there's like no official world championship for this kind of race, but it's probably as close as there is. Yeah. It's, it's the best of the best uh, have, gone, have done that race and are at that race. And it was, um, it was a dream that I thought, I mean, it was a dream race that I thought I'd never re- reach, yeah. but, but did. And that was 350 miles on the Iditarod Trail on foot. On foot. Same same scenario, except that race, there's nothing required. Yeah. They let you do whatever you want. <laughs> if you want to do it with nothing but the clothes on your back, no one's going to stop you. Um, Jeez. That's gra- they say that that's, uh, it's graduate what level, and at that, at that level, they're not going to tell you what you need to do. Yeah, you need to know. Yeah, you've, yeah. Been, you've been through enough to yeah. realize what you need to do there, if yeah. you're getting there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So this last, this last winter I did, um, well, the first year I did the three races the next year, like, like, like everything else I do, I, I wanted, no one had ever done the rim through series on foot twice. Other people had tried, but nobody had ever done it. So the next year I wanted to be the first. <laughs> and on top of all that, I signed up for the white mountain 100, which is a hundred miler North of Fairbanks in March. And I said, I'm going to do a super slam. Not only am I going to be the first rim thrower, two time rim thrower on foot, but I'm going to do another one for a super slam. And I did. And wow, that is then this year I did the, uh, I did the ITI 350 and it's way more remote, way more extreme. There is nobody that's going to save your butt. If you get into trouble, there's no, there's no race directors. Um, you know, checking yet aid stations. There's no one out patrolling the course on snowmobiles like there are in the other races. There's no towns. There's no. There's no nothing. It is in the middle of nowhere. And that one, they they bush flight the stuff out. Yeah, on. most of the checkpoints it's are crazy. off the grid, off the road system. So the the checkpoints get are get set up. They're all supplied by by uh by bush plane. I mean, it's it's. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it was an it was the experience of a lifetime. I I celebrated my 49th birthday going over Rainy Pass with the second best Northern Light display I'd ever seen. Rainy Pass is like the one of the iconic spots of that trail, and it was like two thirds of the sky, just wow. you know, like you see in the pictures for for hours, and it was it was just amazing. Contact Outdoors crew would like to send out a sincere thank you to all of our listeners. The Backcountry Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Contact Outdoors and directed by Brian Hallberg. Original music and audio production by Nakota Rankin. Connect with us online. Links to our website, Instagram, and Facebook can be found in the show notes.